You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One, 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 one. Here's a weird one for you. You've probably heard of the liger, the giant cat born of a lion and tiger. But for hundreds of years, people believed in a very different lion hybrid. The ant lion. Yes, that is exactly what it sounds like. Half lion, half ant. First described in a first-century book of natural history entitled Physiologus, the ant lion was said to be the result of a lion father and ant mother. Ant lions had their pappy's feline head, mane, and jaws, but their mother's torso, legs, and thorax, I guess? Physiologus makes no remarks about what I would think would be the most important characteristic of the ant lion: its size. After all, an ant-sized creature with a lion's head would be neat, maybe even cute. But a lion-sized ant with teeth? That is some nightmare fuel right there. The creature's size is a relatively moot point, as the ant lion never lived for long, because its head was carnivorous and its body herbivorous, the antlion was unable to eat and would die of starvation. For at least 700 years, Christians believed in the existence of antlions, but eventually some doubt snuck in. Maybe those doubts regarded how a 400-pound cat with an 8-inch barbed penis managed to stoop a walking grain of rice, because that, that seems like a question one might think to ask, but you know, what do I know? Even while the notion of a crossbred antlion waned, a different version of the antlion rose up to replace it. Pope Gregory the Great, writing in 595 AD, explained that the antlion was an insect that you or I might regard as an ant, but that ants and other small bugs would consider a lion, because to them it is quite large and ferocious, lying in wait for or stalking its hapless prey, which is a far more reasonable description of an animal, except that this antlion, too, didn't actually exist. Eventually, antlion came to describe another insect, the larvae of which digs holes in sand that smaller bugs fall into, like the sarlacc from Return of the Jedi. These antlions are real creatures, and pretty common ones, too. But by this point in history, you might rightly ask, holy crap, guys, why so married to the antlion thing? There is an answer. And to get it, we have to go back to the Old Testament. In the King James Bible, Job 4.11 reads, The old lion perisheth for lack of prey, and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. But the book of Job, as it was first put down, used a lot of 
strange poetic language and odd vocabulary. And the word in the original Hebrew is not so obviously lion. And the 70 translators who put together the Septuagint, the first complete Greek translation of the Torah, for some reason or another, called the animal myrmecolium, ant lion. Oh, simple mistake, you or I might reasonably say, but only if you or I don't subscribe to biblical inerrancy, unlike, say, most Christians of the first millennium, and a disconcerting number of American ones now. For Christians up until at least the Reformation, there was no way ant lion could be a misunderstanding or a mistranslation because the Bible was the exact and inspired word of God. Ipso facto, there must be ant lions. If you'd believe it, I have a real soft spot for these sorts of stories. And if you're listening, you, you probably do too. So, Today, we're bringing you three stories of misbegotten beliefs about animals, and then tracking them back to their bizarrely innocuous roots. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, calling this one Fireproof Lizards, Vegetable Lambs, and Ball-Biting Beavers. Two! Let's take salamanders, which are, are pretty spectacular creatures. They're the only vertebrates that can grow back lost limbs, for instance. But folks of old ascribed a number of more fanciful attributes to the salamander, mostly having to do with fire. Pliny the Elder thought that salamanders could extinguish any fire they were thrown in, a belief he got from... Aristotle. Because of course he did. And someday we're going to manage to go two shows without Aristotle saying something obnoxious, I promise, but it, it probably won't be anytime soon. Anyway, Aristotle said that salamanders were so cold that their icy bodies would put out fires. Pliny, in an uncharacteristic bout of skepticism, says that this is unlikely to be true. While he grants that the salamander is the most poisonous of all animals, he believes that if one climbs a tree, all of the fruit of the tree will become deadly, and the same goes for if it bathes in a well or a river, he notes that if Aristotle were correct, it'd be easy enough to prove. There are no shortage of salamanders to throw into fires, after all. And yet, even though he himself notes the improbability of it, he later concludes, offhandedly, that Aristotle is right. For no good reason at all, other than you know, Aristotle. From Pliny on out, many fantastical fire-based powers are granted to salamanders. Some say that they are merely immune to the effects of fire, others that they are born from it. And these beliefs stretch far across the world, from Persia to China, from England to Israel. Leonardo da Vinci goes as far as to say that salamanders eat only fire, and that they have no internal organs other than the magical fire that animates them. Paracelsus takes things even further, concluding that salamanders aren't animals at all, but elemental fire spirits, the animated essence of fire itself. He also, at one point, calls the salamander the Pope as monster, giving it a human head upon which rests a crown and pope hat, although it's not clear whether he means this literally or as some sort of political commentary. Somewhere between Pliny and Paracelsus, things get even stranger. A belief seeps into the world that salamanders are also covered in fur, and that the fur can be shorn to weave fireproof fabric for garments. Or else, perhaps, they weave cocoons out of which a fireproof silk can be made. 
Whichever the explanation, many prominent Europeans, including Pope Alexander III, are said to have possessed these fireproof cloaks, gifted to them from travelers in China. This part of the salamander's legend is no trouble to writ aloud. There were indeed fireproof fabrics in China, and they were brought back to some moneyed and influential Europeans through merchants and explorers. But Marco Polo himself explains in part the misunderstanding. He says that the true salamander is not a lizard at all, but a mineral mined from within Chinese mountains. That is to say, asbestos. Which is not a thing you want to wear, in case you were thinking about it. But what about the salamander itself? Why would so many people from so many parts of the world all reach such similar and similarly erroneous conclusions? It could be the poison that some salamanders possessed, which they secrete all over their skin when scared and can even hurl at predators. It's also possible that it has something to do with the coloration of the poisonous ones, which in several species look a bit like licking flames. But probably it owes to something far less obvious the salamander's hibernation habits. Salamanders nestle themselves away inside of rotting logs, which means that if you're a person who shares a habitat with salamanders, and you're a person who uses wood fire to keep warm, you're pretty likely to eventually see a lizard or two scurrying from your campfire or hearth, seeming to have been born straight from the flames. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Three. The best mysteries are those where the question is as inscrutable as the answer is obvious. Let's call this the, huh? Oh, of course, quotient, or H-O-O-C. And not many mysteries have as high a hawk score as the Lamb of Tartary. There are a few variations on this one, so let's just get started at the most absurd, and then we can try to swim our way back to more sensible shores from there, okay? Great. In 1549, Baron Sigismund von Herbenstein, Germany's ambassador to Russia, published a book about the Muscovites, or Russians, and their territory. In it, he describes a plant stalk, or stem, about two and a half, three feet high, like tall grass or corn. But instead of a cob, at the top there was what looked like a sheep, woolly and hoofed and uh, alive. The lamb was suspended above the ground there, with the stalk disappearing into its belly like a flagpole umbilical cord, but the animal was able to heave its weight around from side to side, thus reaching the ground temporarily to chew on the surrounding grasses. Provided the lamb wasn't gobbled up by men or wolves, according to French naturalist Claude Duray, its meat tasted like crab and its blood was like honey, it would chew up all the available cud within reach and then both the plant and its semi-animal attachment would die. This is the lamb of Tartary, also known as a baromitz, or vegetable lamb. At least, 
This is one version of it. The legend goes way back. The first mention comes from 436 AD in the Jewish Talmud of Rabbi Jochanan, in which he describes the Yedua, a lambish creature that bursts forth from a seed pod and wanders about tethered to a vine-like stem. Unlike the Baron's version, the Yedua isn't suspended from the ground, but still leashed to its mother plant. A similar story of a water sheep goes back almost as far in China. The vegetable lamb took hold of European imaginations with the publication of The Travels of John Mandeville, a book that already featured in our episode about bird migration. John was an extremely dubious chronicler of the world, not least of which because he was the invention of a French physician in the 1350s. Nevertheless, John describes the tartary lamb as a gourd-like fruit that, when cracked into, reveals a tiny lamb-like animal flesh, blood, and bone alike, which the people of Tartary eat as a delicacy. Whichever version of the Baramets you follow, the description seems ridiculous. Which is why it might surprise you to learn that several vegetable lambs were catalogued in European museums, and a couple still exist today. It's difficult to describe these preserved... Uh, creatures. Their legs are like four thick and sturdy wooden stumps rising up to body covered in wiry thicket. They do look vaguely lamb-like, although they could just as easily be described as terriers of tartary or vegetable peg-legged ferrets. No, the problem with all those descriptions is that they run the risk of you thinking these things are cute. So allow me to disabuse you. They are not cute. They are... they're somewhere between creepy and hideous. But they're also entirely explicable. When the first of these preserved vegetable lambs was exhibited by the Royal Society in London, naturalist and collector Hans Sloan recognized what was going on almost immediately. The animal was a fraud, of course, but Sloan figured out the sleight of hand. The body of the lamb was the rhizome, or base, of a large fern plant, and the legs were the fronds, or branches, whittled down to leg height. Then the plant had been plucked up, its roots removed, and the whole thing turned upside down. Still, that is not the solution to our mystery. Mongolian traders were selling off these faux vegetable lambs to European visitors, but they only got the idea to do so because they knew said visitors were in the market for the creature. They didn't create the myth. They were just catching a ride on it. So where, then, did this bizarre idea hatch? Naturalist Henry Lee nailed it down in a lengthy book on the subject published in 1887. But I can summarize his answer in one word. Cotton. If you came from basically anywhere other than India and lived basically any time before the 12th century, the only clothes you knew came from animals. Hides, furs, or fleeces represented the whole of the fabriced universe. So, if some trader comes into port in Spain with a pair of cotton pants, how else could you describe the origin of the material? If we think of the good baron's description of the lamb on top of a plant stalk, how many steps of telephone do you imagine it'd take to get from there to a cotton ball? 
Lee describes a number of possible vectors through which this misunderstanding may have caught flight. The Greek historian Cesius wrote of Indian trees that bear wool. Herodotus remarks upon an Egyptian king regaled in fleeces from trees. Alexander the Great's Nearchus describes the people of Indo-Scythia as wearing clothes, quote, made of the wool like that of lambs which grows in tufts and bunches upon trees. But Lee settles on a different likely genesis for the vegetable lamb. He takes it back to Theophrastus, a disciple of Aristotle, who offered this stunningly accurate comparatively description. In the island of Tylos, which is in the Arabian Gulf, the wool-bearing trees which grow there abundantly have leaves like the vine, but smaller. They bear no fruit, but the pod containing the wool is about the size of a spring apple. Whilst it is unripe and closed, but when it is ripe, it opens. The wool is then gathered from it and woven into cloths of various qualities, some inferior, but others of great value. Innocuous, right? To the point, unsensational. How could this description, of all things, been the thing that set the baromet's wheel a-spinning? It all comes down to that phrase, spring apple. The ancient Greek word that Theophrastus used is a homophone a couple of times over. It comes to us as melon, but could also mean apple, or fruit, or... That's right, sheep. The pod containing the wool is like a spring sheep. Four! While some people had doubts about the vegetable lamb from pretty early on, that didn't stop it from becoming a pretty popular subject for artists. But the number of images of the Tartary sheep cannot hold a candle to the pile of paintings, tapestries, and woodcuts about our final subject. You can look them up if you'd like, although I would suggest putting on safe search before googling ball-biting beaver. What you'll find is a sleuth, yes, a sleuth, that is the word for a group of beavers, a sleuth of pictures of vaguely beaverish-looking creatures gnawing off their own nutsacks and throwing them towards pursuing hunters. This artistic motif represented a real and surprisingly abiding belief, and it's just as the pictures show. Folks from Cicero on down to Gerald of Wales in the 12th century, all the way through to the 1600s, believed that if you hunted a beaver, it would chew through its own testicles, toss them your way, then climb a rock, and present its newly castrated nether region and run. Questions? Any questions? Okay, well, let's, let's skip the obvious one and ask this. Do beavers even have external testicles? No, they do not. But it wasn't until Sir Thomas Brown published Pseudodoxia Epidemica that that became common knowledge. Brown's book, also called Vulgar Errors, was a fantastic work of popular science, set on examining, expunging, and eliminating ridiculous misbeliefs. In it, he notes that male beavers' testicles are carried internally, and that the bumps for which they are prized are actually gland sacs around their anuses. Boy, that is just a whole bunch of unsettling words right in a row there, isn't it? 
If you've listened to our episode on homeopathic medicine, you may have a hint of what's going on here. Hey, did you know you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or any of your preferred casting methods? That is neato, huh? While beavers were hunted for their pelts, their meat, and even their teeth, the most valuable product of the beaver was castorium, the sweet, sweet secretion from those anal glands. Castorium was believed to have all sorts of amazing medical uses, from anesthetic to aphrodisiac to crucial ingredient of the panacea called venice treacle, or theriac. So, if a beaver could remove its castor sac and leave it for an approaching hunter, it could save its life by giving up its most valuable anatomical part. And that is what Cicero and Gerald and even our pal Pliny the Elder believed they would, in fact, do. But, while that explains why a beaver might do this were it aware of the option, it doesn't really explain why folks thought it was an actual course of action, does it? Where does the story itself come from? As it turns out, from a story. A fable, really, by Aesop. Aesop tells the tale of the beaver biting off his testicles to save himself from hunters and affixes to it this moral. If only people would take the same approach and agree to be deprived of their possessions in order to live lives free from danger, no one, after all, would set a trap for someone already stripped to the skin. Later on, early Christians appropriated Aesop's fable as a lesson for how men could save themselves from the devil's clutches by removing the part that led them to sin. That the beaver story was both believed as a matter of fact and also taken as a symbolic fable makes it difficult to suss out who believed which. Take all those pictures. Which of them are misbegotten depictions of what were believed to be actual beaver hunts and which illustrations for Aesop's tale? It's hard to say. But one thing we can say for certain is this. Nobody uses beaver secretions for medicine anymore. No, sir. Instead, we, we, we do use it for cologne and Swiss schnapps. Oh, and, and on occasion, vanilla flavoring. So, you can rest easy, I guess. That's it for this week's show. Join us next time for our season finale, wherein I'll detail our greatest geniuses, greatest blunder, finally explain the title of this damn show, and, uh, oh, get a tattoo. <sighs> I'm very nervous about that. But if I'm going to go through the process of stabbing ink permanently into my forearm, maybe you can find it within yourself to like, subscribe, rate, and review the show? I'd be ever so grateful. Until next time, from that toddling town, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. But Lee settles on a different likely genesis for the vegetable lamb. He takes it back to Theophrastus. 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 Theophrastus.
Theophrastus. Theophrastus? Theophrastus. It's probably Theophrastus. <laughs> Let's get a fucking verdict on that.